Good afternoon, everyone. Now, where I come from, we call this a Vespers service. Vespers means, you know Vespers, right? Technically, it means an evening worship. Sometimes people say, oh, Vespers, that's Friday night. Uh, really, could be any night of the week. It's evening worship. As we're closing out the Sabbath today, I would like to uh, turn our attention to a couple passages of Scripture. Uh, I want to preface it a little bit. I'm assuming most of you were here this morning. If not, um, hopefully you'll catch on. I'm not going to actually do a lot from this morning, but this morning I talked about how I got a call just this last week from a pastor friend of mine, and, and he had a couple in the church that had decided that Adventism was too much for them, and they were going to no longer be Adventist. Uh, they were studying into things, and uh, ironically, has anybody ever had this happen to a friend of yours? Perhaps maybe even you yourself at one time, and maybe you're on your way back, which is, hey, praise the Lord. But what happens oftentimes is this. Let me, I'll, I'm going to come around to that. There are a lot of passages in Scripture, especially in Paul's writings, which Peter points out, that can be confusing. And for a preacher, it's more helpful to, to um, present things in a very simple way. And sometimes it's easier to do that without going to the passage. And I fear that too often in the Adventist church, we really aren't familiar with the passages anymore. And so I can give you an argument from, from Scripture. I can throw a couple texts in there and say, this is what it's saying. You're like, amen, pastor, without really studying for yourself. And then some person comes to you and says, well, you know, the Adventist church is wrong on that. And they begin throwing texts at you that you hadn't studied those either, but they sound awful convincing. And it was interesting as I was talking to my pastor friend that this particular couple is bringing to him certain passages and in essence, in his words, studying more than they've ever really studied before. Uh, unfortunately, they often are studying the books of somebody else and their take on certain things. And, and that comes back to, too many of us don't really spend time studying the word. And so I want to look at a couple passages. This afternoon, we're, we're, we're building on what we looked at this morning. The, the topic is called Two Covenants. Only, I'm not going to be looking at, uh, or let me say it this way, we're going to be spend the, spending the bulk of our time in a couple passages that we typically don't spend as much time in because they tend to be more confusing and it takes more energy to go through them, and so we just don't. And I think you're going to follow me here. Um, I think we can make it practical, but listen, <laughs> we've got to understand the scripture that we're basing our belief system on. As much as it's all oh, practical and easy to understand, we've got to know where we get it from the Bible. I'm going to be clear with you that if you don't know that, the devil's going to bring somebody in your pathway that's going to bring all kinds of fancy-sounding scripture arguments. It's going to sound like scripture arguments, and you're going to be swept away with it. I, uh, based on what? Based on at least my 25 years of ministerial experience and a uh, boatload of others. So this afternoon, I want to start with a word of prayer, and then we are going to open our Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for the privilege that we have of studying your word together. And more than this, Lord, that you have promised every sincere seeker the spirit of truth to lead us into an understanding of the truth. So now, Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you would bless our time together. 
So we're closing the hours of the Sabbath. May the subject that we study this evening, uh, along with what we learned this morning, draw us closer to you and help us to be better witnesses for Christ. We ask and pray it in his name. Amen. All right. Now, when we talk about the covenants, how many of you have ever had somebody challenge you on Sabbath keeping and say, you know, something to the effect that, listen, I know you guys feel passionate about the Sabbath, but as Christians living today, we are under the new covenant. We're not under the old covenant anymore. You ever hear that? That, that is a mainstream evangelical idea that the difference between the covenants is that the old covenant taught the Ten Commandments, but the new covenant doesn't. That's completely false. And in fact, I suppose, I, I was about to say we're, we're not going to go to the main passages we usually look at when we look at the covenants, but then I kept myself from doing that because the first place I want to go tonight is, or this afternoon, is to the book of Hebrews chapter 8. And in Hebrews chapter 8, just to be clear, Paul talks about the new covenant, but he's quoting from Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31 to be precise. And these two passages, Jeremiah's passage and Paul quoting Jeremiah, are the main, uh, and I, I, I don't have the count in front of me, I'm going to say there's, there's maybe eight passages in the scripture that use the terminology new covenant. At least three of them are, this is the new covenant in my blood at the Last Supper. So for as far as explaining the new covenant, there are two passages, Jeremiah and Hebrews. Now, that's important for a Seventh-day Adventist because most of your evangelical friends think the new covenant is exclusively New Testament. And they don't realize that the new covenant came from the Old Testament. And Paul just quotes from it. Now, Hebrews chapter 8, let's go to verse 6, and notice what he says there. And I'm in Hebrews 1, so I need to go to Hebrews 8. Bible says in verse 6, But now he, speaking of Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of, what kind of covenant? A better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless then no place would have been sought for a second. So right there, it's very clear that there was a fault with the old covenant. And our Christian friends will say, well, fault was the law. Follow on. He says in verse 8, because finding fault with, speaking of who? Now, if you know anything about the old covenant, and I'm going to take some things, we'll just, I'll ask you instead of us digging into all the different passages, but where does the Bible tie the old covenant to? There's, a, there's an event that the, that the Old Covenant is tied to. If you don't get it, we're going to look at it in 2 Corinthians in a minute. Sinai. The giving of the law at Sinai. Uh, that's where the Old Covenant is, is, is tied to. And at Sinai, when God presented the law to the people, what was, what was the people's response to that? Everything God said, we're going to do it. Did they do it? No. Finding fault with them. That's, that's what Paul's saying here. That's what Jeremiah was saying when Paul... Quotes, because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with, notice who he's making it with, the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, this is another very fascinating piece about the covenants. God did not make a covenant with the Gentiles. He made it with the Jews. And so any person who's 
becoming a part of Israel becomes part of spiritual Israel. They enter into the... So again, this is, a, this is a mind blower for your Christian friends. They're like, no, God made the old covenant with the Jews, new covenant he made with the Gentiles. Oh, uh, no, he didn't. <laughs> you read it right here. Who do you make the new covenant with? House of Israel, house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant... And I disregarded them, says the Lord. So there's the finding fault with them. They didn't continue. Now, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put what? Now, that's a real problem, isn't it? For an evangelical Christian. Your Christian friends, they thought the new covenant didn't have the law in it. And yet, what's the first thing the Lord says? I'm going to make a new covenant. And when I do, this is what I'm going to do in that new covenant. I'm going to put my... Laws in their hearts and write them, in their mind rather, and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people, etc., etc. So just to be clear, the common understanding in Christianity is that the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is that one has the law and one, has, one does not. But scripture does not teach that at all. Scripture is very clear that both have the law of God. So if that's the case, what's the difference with the two? Well, you get a little bit of an idea in the finding fault with them, but we're going to pick up on, on that difference in the other passages we look at today. And we're going to start in uh, 2 Corinthians, pardon me, chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 6. It's in the middle of a sentence, but you'll follow it as we get there. And, and this is, I'm, I, I specifically chose this because it's tricky language. And I'm telling you right now that if it, 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 a faithful Seventh-day Adventist can read this passage and say, whoa, wait a minute, what in the world is this saying? And a person who's on shaky ground is a sitting duck for somebody to come by and say, well, look, this passage, Paul's really plain here that God did away with the need to keep the Ten Commandments. Now, follow along. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. And, and notice in the very end of verse 5, it's, it's God, comma, who also made us sufficient as, what? Ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, because of the glory that excels. For if what was passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Now that is a mouthful. So let's look at, at, at this verse 7. The ministry of death written and engraved on stones. What's he talking about? In part he's talking about the Ten Commandments. That's what was written and engraved on stones. And here he says it's a ministry of death. And in the next verse, he calls it, uh, sorry, the, the, the verse 9, the ministry of condemnation. 
Does any of that sound positive when dealing with the Ten Commandments? Not at all. And again, this is the takeaway people have. There are people who read these verses and they say, well, Paul's pretty down on the law. I want you to notice, uh, notice a distinction that people, and let me back up a little bit here. One of the biggest challenges, if, if, if a gospel writer writes something, and we, whether intentionally or unintentionally, misinterpret it, not only are we walking away with a wrong meaning, but we're missing out on the right meaning. And, and that's my big concern as we go through this, and you'll see it when we, when we conclude today. There's often little words. He's, he says in verse 7, the ministry of death written and engraved on stones. So notice that, that, that what's written and engraved on stones was the Ten Commandments, but he's not talking about the Ten Commandments, but the ministry of them. And in the context, who was the minister? I believe the King James Version says the ministration. And a ministration is a ministry that's carried out by a minister. And so what Paul's describing here is the ministration of the Ten Commandments. Who was the minister in the context of the Ten Commandments? It was Moses. God used Moses to bring the commandments to the people. Okay, just hang on to that for a minute. Now, he contrasts that with what he calls... Yes, the ministration of, or the ministry of the Spirit, verse 8. Who are the ministers of the ministry of the Spirit? Think about who's writing. <laughs> These are the apostles of Christ. And so Paul's contrasting, you have Moses and Moses' ministry, and he ministered the law. We are ministering the Spirit. Ministers of the new covenant, he says there in verse 6. Um, not of the, of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, verse 7 again. And, and you're just, bear with me, we gotta, we're going to break down pieces and then we're going to put it together. So the ministry of death is the ministry of Moses bringing the commandments before the people. Now, you would think that if you called something the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation, you would follow by saying, oh, it was a, how, what, good or bad? But what does Paul say? The ministry of death was glorious. What? Did I miss something here? And notice his example for this. If the ministry of death written on engraved in stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the what? Face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. Let's just pause there. So when Moses went into the mountain to get the stones from God, how did he leave that encounter? If you recall, if you haven't read it, go back and read in the scripture, in the book of Exodus, the Bible says Moses came out with his face shining so brightly, when he came before the people, they couldn't even look at his face. The glory was so bright. And so Moses had to do what? And we read it in the past. He had to put a veil over his face. How long did that veil stay over his face? Scripture doesn't tell us, but it wasn't forever. We know that, right? Because why? Because the glory faded away. Where did the glory come from? Okay, the presence of God. He went into the presence of God because God gave him the commandments. Okay? So in the presence of God, like even that, 
ministration, that ministry of Moses had an element of glory, and that element of glory came from the presence of God, so much so that when Moses left that encounter, the glory was on his face. But he says the glory faded away. Now, that's a key point when we come around to wrapping this up. So that's one aspect. That's, that's one of the ministries, the ministry of Moses with the ministry of death, but even that ministry of death was glorious. So his question is, if the ministry of death was glorious... How will, verse 8, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Because does the Spirit bring death? What's the Bible say about the Spirit? The Spirit gives life. If a ministry of death is glorious, how much more glorious a ministry of life? Right? And that's Paul's question. How, verse 8, will the ministry of the Spirit be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory... The ministry of righteousness, he's still talking about the two things, exceeds. But notice now he calls it the ministry of righteousness. And, and again, something that I'll unpack in just a minute. Exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. Now that's very wordy. But what he's saying, now, now he's telling us that that first covenant, the glory that was on Moses' face, the first covenant was made glorious. Again, going back to what we were talking about, what made it glorious? The presence of God. Okay? The presence of God. If that ministry had glory, how much more the ministry of the Spirit? So let's talk about, about this in, in terms of the covenant. What is the law? Where is the law, I should ask, in the old covenant? It's on tablets of stone. Where is the law in the new covenant? What did Paul tell us in the book of Hebrews? Or what did God say, rather, in the book of Hebrews, in quoting from Jeremiah, that I will make a new covenant and I'll write my law in their hearts? What was the effect of the presence of God on the outside of Moses? There was glory. What's going to be the effect of the presence of God on the inside of the believer? More glorious. The problem with the glory on the outside is it's going to fade away. It can't help but fade away. And let me give you a practical example. And I gave this example. I told you this morning that when I spoke at GYC, I gave this example to the young people there, but I couldn't break it down with the passage. And I told them that there are certain events like GYC. Now, this is a youth event, and there's, there were 4,000 people there. And there's just something about having 4,000 people in the room. And, you know, they're all young people, and they all have the, mo most of them want the same thing. They want a spiritual uh, 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 revival. They want, they want to follow God's will in their lives. And there's just something about that experience. And it's not just for young people. If you've ever been to any experience like that, you can have an experience just like that right here. We could come here this morning and hear a sermon that stirs our hearts, and you feel charged up. But if you don't internalize what you're learning from the Lord. You'll go from a meeting like that glowing, but the glory fades away. Just like with Moses. He was in the presence of God, and the glory was there, but the presence of God was on the outside, not on the inside. And so Paul likens that whole experience to the old covenant experience of the Christian. Now, before we're done today, I'm going to make something very plain. We treat the covenants as, I shouldn't say we do. 
we can fall into it. But I know the Christian world treats the covenants as what we would call dispensational. They're, they're time-based. If you lived at this time in the world's history, you would have been under the old covenant. But now if you live at this time, you're under the new covenant. But I'm going to tell you that the Bible teaches that you can be under the old covenant one day, the new covenant the next day, and back under the old the day after that. The covenants are an experience that somebody can have at any time. Now, we'll see that in Scripture, but I just, I just uh, want us to get this. As Paul's going through this, and a lot of Christians will look and say, oh, Paul's, Paul's knocking the law, and he's saying, hey, we don't, we don't need the law because, you know, it, it, first of all, I don't know what they do with the glorious part. I'm going to tell you what they do with it. They don't go over the scripture. They don't expound the scripture. They just tell people, like I told you, we get in danger of doing. We don't ever study. Like, no, law is bad. Well, if it's bad, why would he call it glorious? Why would over in Romans 7, 14, he says the law is holy and just and good? That doesn't make sense if the law was a bad thing. Why would he say the law is lawful if one uses it lawfully to Timothy? Why would he say those things, right? He wouldn't. And so very clearly, Paul was not down. Why would he, why would he encourage believers in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, for this is the first commandment with promise. What's he doing telling him to keep the commandments in Ephesians chapter? You understand what I'm saying? So, so that's where we as Christians, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, pause and we say, okay, as much as I, I want to hear out my other Christian friends, it doesn't wash that Paul would be knocking the law of God here. And when you read a little further, you see that he's not, it's not his issue is not with the law of God. The problem between the old and the new covenants was the people of God, think about this with me. And, and, and incidentally, the, the old covenant and the giving of the law at Sinai was not taken the way God intended it to be taken. Because when God gave the law at Sinai, he gave something else right along with the Ten Commandments. Do you remember what it was? The law of, of ordinances, the sacrificial law. What did the sacrificial law point the people to? What is the sacrificial law all about? We talked about it this morning, what God is willing to do to save man. Now, had they seen that, and incidentally, what God's willing to do to save man because man is helpless. Now, if they received that lesson, then when the law came from Sinai, would they have said, oh, yeah, we've got that? No, but they missed that point. And so the old covenant, law given at Sinai, becomes a, a symbol of man trying to work things out on his own without the transforming power of God. The new covenant is then tied to the work of the spirit, where what was outward to man becomes internalized. The law that was external becomes written on the heart. And now that glory that was outside becomes a part of the inside of the individual and it becomes a lasting religious or spiritual experience. You follow what I'm saying there? This is Paul's whole point in contrasting these two things. So he says... Again, in verse 9, if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. They're both glorious because the law of God is holy and just and good. But outside the person, if the person never surrenders his or her heart to Christ and has the transformation of God, the Holy Spirit, and the law written on the heart, it's going to fade away. The experience cannot last. Verse 10, for even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. When you compare the two, it, the, 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 the law written on the heart overshadows anything, any of the glory that came from being in the presence of God to have the presence of God within. He says, 
in verse 11, for if what, was, if what is passing away was glorious, and notice the word here, what remains is much glorious. What was passing away was not the law, but the glory that was external. And you will find, now this is one of the more complicated passages, but you will find consistently that the argument of the Apostle Paul, when it, it, it would appear, if you ever have somebody throw a text at you, you read a text and, it says, and you say, it seems like Paul is, is talking negatively about the law. You look at it closely, and here's the issue Paul had. P, there, Paul's issue was when people would try to use the law and their obedience to the law to find their standing with God. That's not what God intended. The law was to lead us to Christ. The law was to show us our sin. That's the function of it. And so, and Paul, you'll find, is perfectly okay with that. But more often than not, and we see this, I mean, the whole Jewish nation, Paul's nation, Paul's own people, what did they do with Christ? Not just crucifying, but after, after the crucifixion, after he was raised again, after the apostles then went around and preached and implored people to accept Christ, did the majority of them accept him? No, but did they hang on to the law? Did they hang on to the rituals? Yeah. What were those worth without Christ? This is why his, you'll see his burden, the whole, his whole ministry is, you've got to accept Christ if anything else is going to go anywhere, if the glory is going to last. Are you following what I'm saying there? Now, it's interesting. He says in verse 12, sorry, lost my place there for a minute. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Now, he's saying in the context that my Jewish brothers and sisters, they still don't get it when they read the Old Testament because they've refused Christ. And if they would only accept Christ, it changes the whole perspective and picture of the Old Testament writings. And I dare say this applies equally to much of Protestant Christianity today. To much of Christianity today. <laughs> Catholic Christianity as well. That this, that when you, when a person receives Christ, you see the things of God in a different way. We talked this morning about the altars of Cain and Abel. In fact, one of my favorite, let me give you one of my favorite uh, examples. When the children of Israel were fleeing Egypt, and the the, you know, they got caught by the Red Sea, and they're camped by the Red Sea, and now they're panicked because where do we go? Because there's mountain ranges in the left hand and the right hand and the sea in front of them. And now the armies of Egypt decide they changed their mind, and they're coming after the children of Israel. And there they are, like sitting ducks on the border of the Red Sea. And, and they cry out to Moses. You remember the whole thing? And, the, and Moses cries to the Lord, and the Lord says, go to, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the children of Israel. Do you remember what he says? Go forward. You want to read an awesome chapter, and I'm going to get this wrong now. It's Testimonies 3 or 4, and the chapter is called Go Forward. Oh, it's incredible. And it's in that chapter, Ellen White describes, as the Egyptians come behind the camp of Israel, the pillar of cloud 
comes down and settles between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And Ellen White says it's a cloud of mist and darkness to the Egyptians, but it lights the way across the sea for the Israelites. And then she says it's the same way with the law of God. For many people, she says the law of God is mist and darkness, but to those who have accepted Christ, and I'm paraphrasing this, it's light. This is the point Paul's making here. The veil is taken away in Christ. When you receive Christ, you see the law in a different way. No longer is it law that's against you. And, it's, and notice Paul's words, the ministry of condemnation. Moses is, is giving the law to the people. Why would he call it a ministry of condemnation? Why is it a ministry of death? Without Christ, what else can it be? What does the law do for you and me? It shows you you're a sinner and the wages of sin is death. What's your way out of that? Christ, you say, I don't want to accept Christ. Guess what? Ministry of death. Again, his point is, one is the ministry of death. You've got to receive the Spirit of God. It's got to be internalized. You've got to have the transforming power of God. And when one receives Christ, the veil's taken away and things change their perspective. So he says in verse 16, Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, let me read 15 and 16 again. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. I mean, another angle we could go with this is as we talked this morning, before you come to Christ, you can't help but your religious experience be an appeasement. Whatever you're doing, including Sabbath keeping, you're just doing it to check the box off. That, that, you can't do otherwise with the carnal nature. You have to be converted to get the new perspective, to understand that these things are what God is doing for me and not things I'm doing for God. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, he says in verse 16, and now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now there's, I hate to skip verse 18, but I'm going to, because we're going to go to Galatians chapter 4, we're going to layer this on Galatians 4 and wrap up in Galatians chapter 4. And you'll see the similar principles. Now, Galatians 4 is, I love Galatians 4 because Paul actually uses, well, he did that a little bit there in 2 Corinthians 3, but he uses a Bible story to teach us the two covenants. And it's pretty straightforward, I think. When you're going in uh, Galatians chapter 4 to verse... We're going to start in verse 21. He says here, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Now, for sake of time, I'm not going to do a deep dive on under the law, but this is a, this is a passage or a phrase Paul uses sometimes. And to, the, the idea of being under the law is, is the mentality of seeking justification by the law it, it, it doesn't mean thinking you should obey the law which a lot of people under the law yeah he's talking to people who think they should obey the law no these are people who feel that their obedience to the law is going to save them folks there's a difference between obeying god's law and obeying god's law for salvation i strive with all my heart with all my life to obey the law of god 
But I do not think in one, one iota of that is going to earn me salvation. As we talked about this morning, the only thing I have to try to obey with is what God's given me in the first place. And if God's given it to me, then I'm not giving him back anything he doesn't have. And there's so many arguments that could be made for that. My point is that, that when, when Paul's talking about here in Galatians, what was happening in Galatia is Paul had preached the gospel to these people. That salvation comes through believing, for, through, through exercising faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to this world, died for your sins. He works in a, he's ascended as our high priest. You know, your faith in, in his sacrifice, your faith in his priesthood, that's where salvation is. But some false teachers had come in and said, well, that's all good, but you also have to be circumcised. You could add anything to that list. You could put anything in the checkbox there. But for them, it was circumcision, and I alluded to it this morning. So now, they're being taught that salvation comes from following, in this particular case, the circumcision requirement. That that's what I have to do to be saved. It's not enough to believe in Christ for salvation. So when Paul starts out this portion, he says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? What do you think he's saying there? Let me, let, let me ask it this way. If I decide that my salvation is going to come from my law keeping, how well do I have to keep it? If that's going to be the foundation of my salvation, how well do I have to keep it? And what does it mean to keep it perfectly? Let me ask it this way. If I do everything outwardly that the law says, am I keeping it perfectly? Not necessarily, right? Because the law of God goes beyond the outward actions, doesn't it? It goes to the motives, which is why Jesus said, a man may look at a woman to luster at her, and he's committed adultery in his heart. A man hates his brother in his heart, and he's committed murder. So to keep the law of God perfectly, it means outwardly and inwardly motive-wise. Thus Paul's question you guys who think you're going to be saved by your law-keeping, do you not hear the law? Do you not understand what you're trying to sign up for? Do you not understand that there's no way you're going to do this? And then he launches into this example. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. Who are the two sons of Abraham that he's outlining here? Ishmael and Isaac, okay? Ishmael and Isaac. And one was born of a bondwoman. Who was the bondwoman? Hagar. And she was the mother of? Ishmael. Very good. And the free woman. Who was the free woman? Sarah. And she was the mother of Isaac, okay? Verse 22. It is written that Abraham had two sons, the one of a, uh, by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman, was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants. So he takes these stories, he says, you want to understand the covenants, understand these stories. Understand the experiences here. So let's review a little bit. God had made a promise to Abraham. What was the promise? You are going to have a child. And through that child, you're going to become the father of a great nation. That child is going to have children and there's going to be children. Now we know from our further study that it was through the line of that child that the Messiah would come. Okay? 
But just the concept of you're going to have a child was a big concept for Abraham and Sarah. Why? Oh, no, not just because they were too old. You're jumping the gun. Let's just say they were younger, which they were at a point in time when God made the promise. I mean, keep in mind that we say, well, God was, Abraham was 75 when God called him. Yeah, but he lived a lot longer than people live today. So they were, they were significantly younger. What does the Bible tell us about Sarah when they were younger? She was barren. What does that mean? Didn't matter what age she was, she could never have children. That, that's a sticking point. If God says, here's how it's all going to work out for you, you're going to have a child. Okay, your wife's barren. So Sarah's barren, but God promises he's going to work a miracle and she's going to have a child. But time passes and no child. And God brings Abraham out, I believe Genesis 15, is it? And he shows him all the stars. In fact, he comes to Abraham and he reminds him, Abraham, you're going to be the father of a great nation. And Abraham's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, wait a minute. Right now, I don't have any children. I keep getting older. And the only child that I could call close to call a child is Eliezer, a servant born in my household. God said, no, 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 no. You're going to be the father. You're going to have a child. So he reiterates the promise. And more time passes, and then what happens? He and Sarah get this idea. You know what? God didn't really necessarily say, I can hear Sarah saying, that it was going to be my child. He said it was going to be your child. And I have this slave girl who's not barren. I mean, this sounds like the stuff of soap operas, right? But it's, this is what happened. That, that you're going to have, why, why don't you go into my slave girl, you get her pregnant, you have a child, and thus you fulfill God's promise. What, what do we call that? Because, besides fornication and any number of things. We call that helping God out, working out. I don't want to say working out your own salvation. That's a term the Bible uses. It doesn't use it that way. But we call that trying to work God's plan out ourselves according to our own wisdom or according to the flesh. That's what Paul means there in verse 23. He who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. What does it mean according to the flesh versus according to the promise? That, that was Abraham and Sarah and Hagar's idea. That was their plan and Ishmael was the fruit of their plan. But Isaac was the fruit of God's promise. Now he says these are the two covenants. And in fact, let's, let's read on in verse 24. Which things are symbolic for these are the two covenants. The one from where? Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. Now let's follow this idea for a minute. What does it mean, speaking of Hagar, that she gives birth to bondage? Is she free or is she a slave? What kind of children does a slave have? A slave can't have free children. 
If you're a slave, your children are slaves. That's just how it works. And that's the point Paul's making here. She's a slave woman. You, if you're in captivity and somebody owns you, which we don't agree with, and don't, but here's the situation that Hagar's in, then if she's a slave girl, her children will be slave children. But Sarah's free, which means her children can be free. Now, Paul uses this to describe the effect of the covenants. So the old covenant, which is connected with Sinai, is just like Hagar, and it gives birth to bondage. Now, what did we just say in 2 Corinthians 3 was unique about the old covenant? The law is where? On the outside, right? You haven't been transformed. You haven't been converted yet. So the law comes to an unconverted person, and it's a ministry of death. It's a ministry of condemnation, right? It gives birth to what? It gives birth to bondage. Why? Because we're slaves to sin. If, I'm a, if, if I've not been converted, my heart is sinful and selfish. What can it produce? Can it produce righteousness? No, this is what James meant when he said, can you bring sweet water and bitter out of the same fountain? No. If you've got the bitter heart, if you've got the corrupted heart, every attempt you make to do something righteous is going to be selfish, filled with selfishness. So he compares this old covenant experience to Hagar. All she can do is give birth to slave children, and all the unconverted person in the old covenant can do is give birth to sin and bondage. It's all they can do without the Spirit of God. He contrasts that with the new covenant. Now, notice he starts to use different language here as we go on. And I'm jumping past the, the he, he quotes from Isaiah. It's an a, actually an awesome piece here, but we're jumping over it for sake of time. So again, in verse 25, he says this, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. The Jerusalem that then was, was not accepting Christ, right? And so they were trying to fulfill the promises of God in their own strength without Christ. It's giving birth to bondage. But he says in verse 28, or verse 26, the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all, for it is written, and I'm going to jump past that portion from Isaiah, and he says in verse 28, now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of... Now, don't miss verse 29. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the promise. Are you following along? Because that's not what it says. Now, it's the same, saying the same thing. But now Paul says, he's contrasting the two. Again, there's only two. There's Ishmael and there's Isaac. One was born in born according to the flesh, one was born according to the promise, he applies them to the covenants, and now he says one's born according to the flesh, and the other's born according to the spirit. Now I want to pause here and just make this, this is the bottom line point that you need never forget. Okay? We talk about the two covenants. What's the difference? It's the law. No, it's not the law. We saw that. What is the difference between the two covenants? Here's the difference. In the old covenant, People are born of the flesh. They're carnal. In the new covenant, 
They're born of the Spirit. They're born again. That's the distinction. The law stays the same. But what is the law to an unconverted person versus the law to a converted person? Right? The cloud, this is why I talked about that. You've got the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. It's a pillar of cloud to one side and a pillar of fire to the other side. The law, that is the law of death to one side of the equation, is a law that says, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart on the other side. The difference between the covenants is, is conversion, which is why you find Jesus. Ellen White says one of Jesus' favorite topics was the, anybody know? The Holy Spirit. Why? Because without the Spirit, you can't be spiritual. I mean, that, we can all come and gather together, but the thing that makes carnal beings spiritual is the Spirit of God. It's a divine miracle. There's no human manufacturing of it. And so Paul's plea in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul's plea here to the Galatian believers is, you're sitting here trying to, you foolish Galatians, he says, you who have begun in the spirit back in chapter 3, do you think you're now going to be made perfect in the flesh? Now that's an interesting, that's an interesting verse. Uh, let, me bring it, let me bring it to play here in this passage. I told you that the covenants, people tend to want to treat them as dispensational. Oh, old covenant was back then, and new covenant is since the cross. Not so. Abraham, Ellen White tells us in Patriarchs and Prophets that when God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, way back there in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham's unquestioning obedience is one of the strongest evidences of faith in the Bible. Okay, now, unconverted people don't give the strongest evidences of faith in the Bible. So Abraham was genuinely converted. And yet, many years later, he works out this little deal with Sarah and Hagar. His conversion experience and his unquestioning obedience to God was a new covenant experience. He was born of the Spirit the Spirit moved upon him. He followed where God led. But you come down to, and this happened a number of times in Abraham's life, and it happens a number of times in our lives. You come down to this experience, and all of a sudden, he's got this old covenant experience with Sarah and Hagar, right? But then you come to the sacrifice of Isaac, and again, he's having a new covenant experience. You understand what I'm saying? Because in the one situation, he's working matters out according to the flesh. In the other situation, it's a faith experience where he's trusting in God. Anytime we try to work, and, and listen, there's so many ways we can do this. I, it, it, it's, it perplexes me sometimes as a pastor because we have ways of excusing ourselves from the divine arrows, the arrows of the Almighty, if you will, those arrows of conviction. Say, you know what? When we work things out our own, you say, yeah, I don't do that. We, we can tend to, there are so many ways you can work things out on your own. You say, no, I'm not one of those people who thinks I'm going to be saved by my works. But I'm going to tell you that when God tells us to do something and we make excuses, that's working it out on your own. Yeah, I don't think it need, I need to do it this way, I'm going to do it this way. What suddenly made you know better than God how to do it? Well, I don't know better than God. I just know in my situation it doesn't apply. That's where it can get out. I mean, there's just so many flavors of that that you can do. And, and this, the Paul's drawing it out in this experience. Abraham and Sarah were 
thinking in their minds that what they were doing is right and godly and, and pleasing to God. They weren't rebelling against God. But they were trying to work out God's promises their way instead of God's way. Their timing instead of God's timing. Their steps instead of God's steps. Sometimes God gives us steps to take and we don't like those and we try to find a shortcut. Oh, there's a lot of times we try to shortcut God because it's, it's like, I don't want to go through all that. And I can tell you in my ministry, when the Lord says, yeah, I want you to go here and pastor. Do I have to go? Why don't I go over here, God? And you remember uh, uh, the destruction of Sodom. And God says, I want you to flee. Well, what about Zoar? It's not a bad place over. There's always some kind of angle we're trying to, the bargain with God. And Paul is trying to, in fact, Paul addresses that as he goes on here. He says in verse 29, as, it, as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Now this is fascinating. You know in the story that Ishmael, when Isaac was uh, born and began to grow up, Ishmael persecuted Isaac. And, and, and Paul, that's the point he's making here. As he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. The very letter he's writing is because the Jews who didn't accept Christ are coming around and hounding Paul and calling him a false apostle and, in essence, persecuting him who was born according to the spirit because they were still born according to the flesh. It's always going to be that way. It's going to be that way in the final contest. And so God told Abraham, you need to send Hagar and Ishmael away. That's what happened in the story. Now, Paul's picking up on that with a spiritual application. And the spiritual application is this. Cast out the bondwoman and her son because the son of the bondwoman will never be heir with son of the free woman. You cannot mingle your own concoctions and plans for how you're going to work out God's purposes with God's purposes. You can't retain your own little favorite pet ideas and still faithfully follow God. This is what he's saying. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. These two examples are stark lines between one option or the other. The option of trust and obedience and the option of doing it our own way. That's what Paul's addressing in 2 Corinthians 3. That's what he's addressing here. And again, the underlying appeal is surrender to Christ. Be converted have that transformation that will take the veil away from your heart and help you to view the things of God in a new light. Where you'll be willing to submit to the instruction of God and the direction of God versus trying to find ways where you might be able to improve upon whatever God's doing. And again, far be it from us, we sit here and think, well, I don't do that, do I? Anytime we don't do what God says. There's a simplicity to obeying God. We like to reason everything out, which isn't altogether bad, until we're reasoning God out of the picture. And there are, you know, we live in a generation of having to know everything. You know, and you hear it, and in fact, I've seen this shift. When I, was, when I was a kid growing up, and some of you remember this, Dad just said stuff, and, you, and it was like, because I said so, and you're going to do it. That used to burn me when my dad did that. But, you know, then, 
it was hard as I got older, and I thought, well, I guess he was right about some of the stuff. You understand what I'm saying? But now we're in a generation where it's like, well, we're going to sit down and explain everything. And the problem is, you can't explain everything to a five-year-old to where they understand why they're not supposed to have the other piece of cake. And so there's a point where dad says this is how it's going to be, or mom says this is how it's going to be, or God himself says, I can't explain everything that I'd like to. There are many things I have to say to you, but you cannot bear them. But this is where you need to go if you want to be safe. And there's a point where a true Christian experience says, yes, Lord, I'll do that. And anything less than that is us working it out according to the flesh. God would have his people in these days yield their wills to God, be converted, and enjoy the freedom that comes through the Spirit of God. The last verse there in verse 31 says, So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but we're children of the free. We're not children of the bondwoman. We're children of the free because when we surrender to Christ and he transforms our hearts, everything that was against us in the spiritual world is on our side. And keep in mind, I want to bring up what I said this morning. Brothers and sisters, God is always on our side. And it's something that we, um, old friend of mine, Dane Griffin, some of you remember Dane Griffin, passed away some years ago. But Dane used to say that salvation is fighting with God until God wins the fight. There's a point where, you know, we've got to be able to say, Lord, whatever you say. We, brethren, are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free, by the grace of God. Amen? Well, I hope this has been somewhat helpful. Certainly has given you some things to think about, as the scripture always does. I want to encourage you to continue to spend. Don't shy away from passages like some of these. I mean, Paul can be very wordy, but just apply yourself and claim the promise of God. Claim the promise of Jesus. He sent the spirit of truth to guide us into truth. And I'm going to tell you, the understanding these kinds of things. I mean, these are the... Listen, if you go out and you share with somebody else, these are the kinds of questions they're asking. These are the kind of texts that you need to answer. And it alarms me these days what Adventists busy themselves with because we're bored with stuff. And we're like the Athenians that Paul speaks of in the book of Acts who love to hear or tell some new thing. Somebody comes out and has some new spin of a doctrine that they're going to share. There's plenty of stuff that just has to do with the fundamentals of faith and obedience that we still should be studying out. I want to encourage you. Apply yourself, and I know I'm preaching to the choir. This is Advent Hope. This is a Sabbath school group. We study the word, amen? And I want to encourage you to keep on doing that and believe, look, we are not in this by ourselves. God took the initiative to save. God is on our side. He was on our side from the beginning. He's on our side now. If there's anything he's asking us to do, it's because it's best for us. If there's any direction he's asking us to go, it's because that's the direction that's going to get us. In fact, oftentimes it's going to answer the prayers we're praying. We sometimes pray, Lord, I want to... I want to be a more positive Christian. I want to be more, uh, I want to have more influence on saving souls. And sometimes we don't know what we're asking him. <laughs> but he does. But God is always working for our best interest. And the more we can come to that settled conclusion in our own lives, the more content we'll be with following God's will. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for this opportunity to come together and study your word on the Sabbath. Uh, uh, the, these passages 
do have complexities to them in, in the way Paul frames them, but at the same time, Lord, I believe the message is clear. Too often, it's easy for us to just follow our carnal natures and try to work things out according to the flesh, but that will only and always lead to condemnation and death. Yet, Lord, we don't need to go down that path. There's a path of life, a path of the Spirit, a path of conversion and transformation and newness in Christ, newness of life in Christ. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us to daily yield to that path, learn that path, walk that path. I pray that you would help us as your people to apply ourselves more uh, diligently to the study of your word and that you would fulfill your promise to give us the spirit of truth, to lead us into your truth. I pray now you would bless each one here as we go from our time with you here in worship, that in this coming week, Lord, we would come in contact with people who would take note that we have spent time with Jesus. This is our prayer in his name and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.